0: And we're going to be in verse 3 and speak out of that today. Now, if you've not been with us, if you've missed a few weeks, or I really encourage you, this is sermon number 8 in this text, and um, we're going to take it from the large overview and then going to dig down deeper from week to week into some of these things. Now, when we think of the word worship, we, um, a lot of things come to mind. Cultural changes have created different types of worship. I know that in a lot of us as we have come through life we think about worship being something very formal, very stoic, very stodgy. We see the classical liturgy of the orthodox churches throughout history and we sometimes we think that's so regal, it's so amazing. And then I know that evangelically in the Protestant movements we have seen that sort of move into what we call the high church of today where you know high church is you dress up you dress up well and you dress up often and then i don't know there's something a little powerful about walking into a big room that's set up with great type of decor and uh having sort of the reverb roll through with a pipe organ playing i honestly can say that i love that ambiance but not in my worship as a musician in music school, you know, we performed and practiced constantly. It was hours, sometimes three and four o'clock in the morning in the practice room because it's the only time you could have after taking six classes a week. And you're, um, you're, you know, you wonder why you do it. Why in the world am I doing all of this? Who cares about all these different modes and scales and patterns? Why am I playing till my hands hurt and till my lips bleed, till my eyes go blind? But then performance day comes. And you're standing up there and you tune and you begin, and it's like you're transported to another place. So sometimes worship in the church is sort of like that. It's, it's something we feel, it's something we experience. It's this, it's this unexplicable just tension between I'm still in this world, but there's some part of me that's in heaven. But, You know, I get that same thing when I hear when I hear an opera that is absolutely pagan. I get the same feeling when I stand sometimes and I look at the vastness of of creation or I stand at the base of a building that has been built by the brain of an architect. Or I get that little silent whisper of a poem and the thousands that ring through my ears every moment of my life and that never-ending narrative that is my conscience and sometimes it runs up the back of my spine thinking wow that's profound so worship is neither about the grand gesture of it all or even the experience in and of itself because sometimes the greatest worship as we saw in first peter is just an expression of joy that is inexpressible sometimes it's the subtle i don't know what Je ne sais quoi. I don't know what I'm experiencing. I can't put it into words, but it is not something that is in me or of me or around me. It is something that is beyond me. Now, I have a little terror in expressing myself this way sometimes. Number one, because it's quasi vulnerable. You get to see a little glimpse inside the production mind of my innermost thoughts and feelings, but I'm still posturing. I'm still doing that because it's what we do innately. We we stand, and even when we're greatly expressive, the only time that I'm absolutely vulnerable is when I'm broken or when I'm angry. And that's okay. And I will tell you, in the greatest moments of fear and pain and anger, usually my anger is a result of my pain there have been some of the greatest opportunities of worship in my entire life. I remember standing in my study in Oakland, California, some short season after a dear family member had passed, and just not knowing where I was. You ever been there? I've been there a couple of times in my adult life. And just everything that I thought was about to come to me, was not given to me because the lord was sovereign in it and i trashed my study physically trashed it i cleaned the desk off i pushed the crt monitor almost broke the floor you know those big crt monitors wondered it didn't blow the house up and then i was like i'm just gonna throw my bible and i wasn't gonna throw the bible because when you buy bougie bibles you don't throw them you know, a little calf had to die to get this. So instead of throwing it, I threw it open, and I dared God to show me something. I'm like, what have I not read? I've read it all a billion times. There's nothing in here I don't know. And I opened the Bible. I haven't read Hebrews in a while. Sorry, don't even know who wrote that thing. Why are we even reading it? You know, that was where I was at that time. Sort of a little... And I opened it up in Hebrews 1, and many times, in many ways, God has spoken to us through our fathers. But in these days, he has spoken to us through his son. And whom he created, through whom he created all things. And the reality of all of that sort of set in. That was worship. Worship sometimes is when we're driving down the road and everything's great. And the kids are sitting in the back, and it's been one of those normal mornings of not being able to fix hair, or I don't like this toast, or this milk tastes funny. It's the same milk drink last night. Shut up and drink it. Or you and your spouse just have your normal days, and you're driving down the road, and you just, you just notice, you know what? I'm settled. Thank, thank you, God. That's worship. So what I want you to see in all that is that there is times of worship when it's regal and grand there's times of worship when it affects us deeply there's times of worship when it's all inside and there's times of worship when it's really really good and there's times of worship when you wish you could die but one thing that never changes in that is the god to whom all praises due he never changes And so when we find ourselves in the economy of grace and we say, what's going on? I feel bankrupt. It's only because our perspective has changed because the riches of glory are still in our account. The righteousness of Christ is still ours and can never be erased. The love of God, no matter how alone we are in this world, will never fail us. And so as we looked at verses 1 through 9 last week, We unpack that in a general sense as the scripture has taught us to do so that we might embrace it. And today I want to slow down and I want to give you a glimpse at how I intersect and relate to the word of God personally. And I believe it's how the Lord has intended for us to do it. Not because of all the hermeneutical teachings or trainings. Those things were always wanting for me. I don't know if you've ever read the hermeneutical spiral. For those of you who are academic in the theological realm. I always think of a toilet flushing when I see the cover of that book. You know. The spiral. Because that's what, that's what the sterile... Academic theologies has done to me in every season of my life is they have flushed my joy. Now, it may not be the same way for you. I know some people, and there are some things that I learn and I've gotten, but the the process of pursuing them took away my joy. Why? Because I'm a romantic. I'm a poet. I'm a creator. I don't, I I like novelty, but I also like stuff like deep substance, And so I'm having to find the richness of everything. You can't have a simple conversation with me, right? You ask me a question that the answer is like a half a sentence and you're going to get 20 minutes of a roadmap to get you there. And I apologize for that and I try so hard. So those of you who get the 20-minute answer, it was an hour. That's very succinct. One of the greatest insults that I ever got was a gentleman a senior adult actually said you know what James you are verbose and my wife doesn't use that word but she always comes in sometimes and she'll ask or we're talking and she goes and I don't want the long answer I won't let your yes be yes and your no be no I don't care about why or what the map was to get there or the etymology of the word just yes or no you know But Peter, talking to these people who are suffering, don't lose sight of it, starts verse 3 with this doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now does your Bible have an exclamation point there? I hope it does. Because the syntax in which we speak our language begs for an exclamation point. And so if we put our theater chops on and we read this in the context in which I believe Peter wrote it with Peter, with first sermon, remember eight weeks ago, with Peter's zeal and personality, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. See, that did something for you, right? But don't mistake what you feel and the emphasis for spirituality. Spirituality. How you express worship is going to be different than me. How you engage in worship is going to be different. And I remember the opposite side of the regal, mm, Almighty fortresses are God, boom, like some explosions. You know, that, I love that stuff. But at the same time, I'll never forget the first time I went to what they call a contemporary church, and it was really contemporary. And it was really free. I mean, people are dancing over here. People are playing cards over here. I mean, it's just like, wow, this is great. You worship God in any way you want. But God does prescribe some things, right? He does say here are some boundaries. Here are some things that we need to do in the fellowship of the saints. But otherwise, an act of worship is something we can do in every moment, in every breath of our lives. But the outside of that, we see. And then I'll never forget me being raised in. Uh, uh, the ideology, I don't even want to say raised, but me growing up with the cultural ideology that, you know, worship was, whoo, it's formal. You'd be quiet. You don't talk. And people were yelling and screaming and laughing and having a good time. Like, man, I'm missing something. And so at that moment in my life, and I was 19 years old at the time, at the university and in the music program and all the best musicians were in that church, We got seven songs for our set today. Start at 10 at noon. The pastor take the pulpit, you know. Songs 10 minutes apiece, 20 minutes apiece, don't matter. How about a reprise? The pastor better get going because if he pauses, they might start back up again. Wait a minute, what was that? And then it's over and everybody starts singing. Dude just needs to sit down. I mean, that that was impressive. I'm like, wow, these people are really, I thought I was missing something because I wanted to worship like they were worshiping. I wanted to feel what they were feeling. But beloved, don't fall into that trap. Don't try to be like Peter here. Don't say to yourself at the end of the sermon, you know, I've never just wanted to exclaim, blessed be you, God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I've never felt that. I've always like, oh. And then you're going to beat yourself up. You're going, to, you're going to create in yourself a guilt that God has not put there nor wants of you. But how can Peter say something like that? What is praise anyway? I mean, we all do it, right, in our own way. I remember the first time I thought I was real slick coming up with this little little turn here where everyone in the world is an evangelist, everyone in the world is an apologist. And I would put that out there and all these hundreds of people, like, really? And I could see the old guys who'd retired from the railroad, and, you know, well, I'm not an apologist, And one of them told me that one time. And I said, really? I said, how many times at breakfast in the last two years have you sat here and beat your drum about labor unions? Or like the one guy who's retired Navy. And he's proud of this country. He's proud of his service. And I'm glad that he is. But no matter where, I mean, if you were talking about fried chicken, somewhere along the line the colonel would come in and then before you know it, The Navy was in the conversation and the service to the country and where the country is. And I'm like, dude, you're an apologist for your patriotism. You're an apologist for your career. You're an apologist for your children. You praise what you love. You talk about what's important, even if it's in the negative. Even when people are like just so frustrated about something. Do you know frustration and anger in and of itself is an expression of passion and love? Because we're not going to sit here and get an elevated heart rate and blood pressure issues and anxiety over something we could hardly care for or as we often say incorrectly couldn't care less and if you know just i could care less that means you care a little more than you could it's couldn't i could not care less is the end of that no we care about a lot of things and we uh, we make known about those things And some of us, depending on our personality and how God's made us, we express those things differently. Some people are just like, "Mm," or smile. Other people will talk and sing and dance and create. Some people get into themselves and just sort of sit still, and others make a lot of noise. Peter's one of these people that makes a lot of noise. So we always know the the uh, knuckle headedness of a guy like Peter because he never ceases to keep his mouth shut about everything he's passionate about. Surely you don't have to die. And then Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Man, I'm just trying to tell you, man, we got you back. You try to call me the devil? Oh my gosh. And Peter probably went insulted. I'm just do. Ha! Chopping ears, boy. We're chopping ears. You're not taking my man to jail. And Jesus puts the ear back. Peter, come on. So I find that ironic. If you're there to arrest some dude who claims to be God and your ear comes off and he puts it back, I'm thinking, like, yeah, I'm going to reevaluate the context of this arrest warrant. I think the judge made a mistake here. Pretending to be God. Well, I think he just proved he was. Much like the fact that they decided to kill him after he raised Lazarus from the dead because that was just too much. Let's kill the guy who can bring people back from the dead. Worship. What do you worship? What do we praise in our life? We praise ourselves sometimes. Not if we're humble. Then we praise our humility, which is praising ourselves. Oh, we praise our spouse. I'm so proud of my wife. I'm so proud of my husband. Look what they've done. Look what they've accomplished. We praise our children. Well, you remembered to get dressed today. I'm so proud of you. You brushed your teeth. Oh, my goodness, the heavens are open. You finished your schoolwork, and you didn't lose your book. Awesome. Now, I'm being funny. Our children are amazing. They, they teach us things that we could never learn without them, and we wouldn't be able to learn even if we heard the stories of others. We could not learn the wisdom that our children teach us. And we praise them. We praise. We talk about them. We're proud of them. We praise the circumstances. We praise God. We praise what we love. And there's a reason that we do it, and there's a reason that we love sometimes, Right? But we've learned already that love is a daily and almost hourly choice to actively participate in the well-being of another, looking to the positive. I thought about it this past week, and I've done a lot of reframing over the last two years. And if you don't know what that means, is that little voice inside your head when you gnaw on all the negative things that have happened to you in the world, like these Jews here in the Dispersia? Can you imagine, sort of like when Moses took the people out of Egypt and they started to complain and moan and complain and moan and complain and moan, all of that complaining about their present situation took their eyes off the promise of what God was doing for them and what God had done for them in the year or so prior through the plagues. To the point where the blessing and the promise of God and the manifestation of his power present with his people right then. How many more Ps can I get out of that sentence? They're, it, they're, they decided that it would be better to be slaves back in Egypt than to be free in the desert. Reframing would be, I know this is tough, I know this manna is not finger looking good, but oh my goodness, we are free. And we are walking into the, next to the presence of God. I mean, how awesome is that, that at night you have a fiery tornado reaching into the heavens, guiding your path? And as far as the eye can see, you know, traveling across country, the nine times we drove completely from California to Georgia and back, we... Sometimes out in the middle of all those deserts, you don't know where you are and your GPS is flying you off in outer space and the moon's showing up and all that kind of stuff. So you just keep going. You turn off your lights, you see the faint glow of a city somewhere. And you know at least you're not going to die alone. Well, imagine the manifestation of God's presence as a fiery tornado to be seen as far as the eye could see. It's greater than that now. It's greater than that in that the presence of God, the Spirit with us, is permanent and forever. And the Word of God is forever present with us. So are we meditating on the truth of who God is? And if so, then our praise will come. We begin to see what we're able to do. Reframing our life focuses on what we do have and who is in our life and what they truly are. But it's very easy for all the negative things in life to overpower the balance of the good. And I've done a lot of writing in the last few years. And what I've learned is that if I take all those, you know, journal entries, I don't know if you journal, I've journaled most of my life, but I've journaled a lot in the last two years. If you take all the journal entries that are just really like curses, like the Davidic Psalms of woe, like Pastor Trey was talking about earlier? Would you just burn them all down, God? And and I take all of those and I put them in a stack. They're thick. They're thick. But if I take all the joyous ones and put them in a stack, they're thicker. They really do outweigh it. But for some reason, this stack is so much thicker. And the reason it is is because I write it in broad tip marker, two words a page. Shout it to the rooftops of my own conscience. I shout it into my head and then I ruminate on that stuff until that small little sticky note of a, of a pain, of a terror, becomes a treatise, becomes a dissertation, becomes a billboard for which I have no container to hold. That's the context of First Peter chapter 1. You see how if we drive this too much to the theological ends academically, we lose sight of how it even matters in our lives? This is how I read the Bible, y'all. And this is how I pray that in your own personality that God has given you, you would read it. So the question now is what in the world is this doxology? What does it even mean? You know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It really means a praise. An outpoured expression of goodness because of the goodness of God. And there's three things that I'm going to show you like 20 times today. Is that we praise God because of who he is and his goodness. And we also praise, in praising God, things change for us in our relationship with ourselves and those around us. And then finally, when we praise God, we are empowered because of the gospel of grace. Now, it won't be that clean, but that's what I'm trying to say today. that's what I'm trying to say so blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we have a what we have a reason according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time there's that breath but I'm just going to talk today about blessed be God. The goodness of God. Now I stopped this week when I got to 22 different Psalms. Because I realized it's just, it just going to... So Psalm 1 all the way to the end is offers some type of praise or doxology to God. But just to get our hearts and our minds in the right place, Psalm 150, this final psalm, is a powerful exhortation to praise God with every musical instrument. You know, you can praise God with musical instruments. You can praise God, Romans 12, with your mind. You can praise God with your life as a living sacrifice. You can praise God with your love and act of service. You can praise God with your patience. You can praise God with everything. You can praise God in everything. Psalm 150 highlights the manifold ways to express our adoration. I probably should have just preached that psalm today. Maybe I'll do it next week. Are we in a hurry? We're not. Psalm 145, David writes this, and he extols God's greatness over and over again. Mercy, his care for his creation. This psalm emphasizes the acts of kindness and the fact that God's kingdom will never fail. Praise you, God, because of these things. Psalm 103 this is a place where David really gets personal. He praises God in the depths of his heart because God has forgiven him and healed him and redeemed him. It reminds us of God's mercy and compassion. Psalm 148, you know this. Psalm 148. Everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Everything that's created. Let the planets, let the stars, let the frogs, praise God. The field, the trees of the field will clap their hands. And so on and so forth. Psalm 34. David, he he pretended to be mad, remember? To crazy. And in doing so, he got away. And this is where we see the words... That we often use without knowing the context where David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Folks, you can't, you can't get away from that. You can't get away from someone telling you to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's always trepidation with our children, you know, when they're little. You gotta taste this. Just taste it. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to taste, just taste it. You'll like it. We had that last night. I made a dish, and I'm not too keen on making dishes that taste good. But this one actually was an exception. But my youngest did not want to take the opportunity to try it. I just don't like that stuff. Sue. Ruby puts it in her mouth, and she does this. Is it bad? No, I like it. (laughs) Didn't want to admit it. It Taste to see that the Lord is good. We worship in that context. Psalm 96, all the earth sing a new song to the Lord, praise him for his salvation. Psalm 113, 113, praises the name of the Lord from sunup to sundown, that he is over and sovereign and transcends all things. Psalm 117, the shortest psalm in the Bible. Yet it calls all nations and people and all the earth to praise the Lord for his steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 8 is a focused meditation on God's majestic name, on creation, on the marvel at how he cares for humanity despite the vastness of his works. That struck me, and I'm going to close my sermon today with a comment that I thought and wrote down from that psalm. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Psalm 29, ascribes. To the Lord, the glory do His name, the powerful voice in creation and strength to His people. Psalm 33 calls the righteous to praise the Lord with harp and song and his trustworth- because of His trustworthiness. Psalm 66, an invitation for all the earth to sing the glory of His name. It also shares a personal, the anecdotes of how God has listened to Him and responded to Him in prayer. Psalm 92, a song for the day of rest. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name, and to declare his steadfast love. Psalm 98 urges us to sing a new song because of the marvelous deeds. Psalm 104, a meditation on God's creation and providence from the heavens to the depths of the sea, celebrating his wisdom and care. Psalm 111 praises the Lord with wholehearted devotion for his works, his faithfulness, and the enduring legacy of his promises. Psalm 136, known for the refrain, His steadfast love endures forever. It recounts the history of God's goodness and His mercy to His people, even in their rebellion and lack of praise. So we see just the Psalms paint a picture, sort of like what Peter is saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise you, Father. You are good, you are blessed, you are mighty, you are awesome. For what you are and who you are and what you've done for us and your people, you are worthy to be praised. But God is worthy to be praised no matter what He's done. No matter what it does for us. But because we are the beneficiaries of His power and His purposes, oh, all the more we have praise. And like I said, you can't praise like Peter, you can praise like you. It may be inexpressible. So as we see Peter do this, he's praising God for his mercy. He's praising God for the hope that we have. For the what? For the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is ours. For the joy that comes through these things. This whole thing unpacks as a doxology to the Lord. And in Psalm 23, one that I didn't mention earlier, we see the praise of God as a shepherd, as a guide, as one who leads us and guides us and comforts us and provides for us. So we can praise God. You might say, well, what am I going to praise God for? Let me give you a couple of things to think about according to the New Testament and, and a few more Psalms. We can praise God for the fact that He does comfort us, that He gives us what we have. And in doing so, we can love Him in this way that what we have, we can also share with others. Our time, our voice, our friendship, our finances, our food, whatever it may be, our prayers. Because it's not physically tangible doesn't mean it's not needed. In Psalm 100, for the Lord is good, we can praise God for His love. We see Paul talking about that in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 8. And we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that text before and thought, well, you know, I'm not sure I really love God like I should. Of course not. If you're not loving yourself through the lens of how our Father sees us, then you're not loving others. You can't respect anyone any better than you respect you. And you can't respect you until you see who you really are in Christ. From a spiritual sense. We can trust in God's goodness, and we know that Christ, in all of this, is the central reality of God's goodness. He's alive, beloved. James has something to say in his letter. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, James 1.17, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we praise God, as I've already said this morning in my introduction, for his unchangedness for his immutability. He is the same forever and always. So that means that no matter how our circumstances, how our perception, how we're framing the world around us, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, God has not changed his love for us. He has not changed his place among us. He has not shifted to the left or the right or the front or the back. He has not turned his gaze. I put way too much stock on facial contact way too much there's something about me that you know in the world especially when I was in my 20s and 30s there was just something about me that invited a butt-kicking or the attempt and I never really understood what it was until recently i watch people <laughs> So when you're staring at somebody, they want to like find out what's going on. And I didn't realize I was doing it. But I was in a restaurant the other day picking up some chicken for the family. And I'm just, I'm just overrun with the processes of that kitchen. And I'm watching these people and I'm watching them work and I'm watching them move and I'm watching them hand these things off. And it's just like this amazing human machine that's just incredible in every personality. You know, the cook's stoic and he's just doing his job. The manager's like, I could have a cigarette or a beer, I would, oh, I'm about to go crazy, but never misses a beat. One of the girls at the cashier, she's doing here, and they're just working. It's just I find it fascinating. I also watch ants. So it's not that impressive. But then all of a sudden, the cook turns around and he says, I'm like, sorry, dude, I'm just impressed. Oh, thanks. (laughs) So maybe that's the point. But I put way too much attention with people who I love and care about and are around me if they're looking in my face. You know why? Because I was raised as a very young boy to make eye contact. And so you probably see that sometimes in my teaching. I'm looking in your eyes. Is he looking at me? Yes. And subconsciously, I've created a baseline for every one of you. I know how you typically are. And when you're not that way, I'm aware of it now, but I used to not. Why am I feeling stressed out? Did I say something wrong? What's going on? Yeah. Hypersensitive people do exist in the world. And so when I think about the Lord... If he turned his gaze from me, I would be destroyed. And by the way, I'm working on that. It's not as important as it used to be. But you can't undo 50 years of programming in an instant. You have to give time. It's okay. Some people can't look you in the face. But the scripture says that God attends to us. That he looks at us. He leans down to us. He condescends to us. But see, that word has a negative connotation. But it's not like that. How does He do it? He he comes into the world as part of the creation that He made for His own glory to be seen. And He invites Himself to be part of it that He may redeem us. That He may love us that he may be with us, and you probably get where I'm going with this whole message. We've heard this text over and over again, but Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now consider that reality, is that when we were dead, and in a, and in a spiritual sense we look at the narrative of Scripture We look at the poetry, we look at the writing, we look at the metaphors. We look at this metaphor in this way that we don't have to worry about the judicial reality of what the eternality of justification and all that kind of stuff is. And and that stuff is not for us to have a place to land that we may have assurance. That stuff is for hobby nerds who love doctrine. And that's okay. You can be that guy or that gal or that kid. But what we're supposed to see... What we're supposed to see is that even while we were dead, God looked at us and was looking at us and was seeing us. Do you know the greatest thing in life? I'm telling you right now, and you may not know this. You might not even believe me, but I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest thing in life is to be known by those who love you fully. Not superficially, not in a way of escape, not frivolously, not specifically, but entirely you know what's crazy you can't know me if I don't know me and if my identity is not clear in Christ you're not going to see any truth of me and the sad thing about that is that I'm not going to see any truth of me and I'm going to walk through life in a way that I think is me until I hit the wall that is not me and then I ask the question who am I are you lost yet And that's going to burn down every relationship that you have starting with your own mind and your theology will follow and your worship will fall and beloved that's one of the reasons we're here every single week so that we might be encouraged in these things God looked at me when I was a decrepit decayed nothing and he said That's my child. He's worth everything. Trey and I tried to talk for a a couple hours yesterday on his drive back. Can you hear me now? No, I can't. And that's one of the things that he brought up is that sometimes we really don't emphasize enough the fact that God sees us in a way that the culture of Christianity teaches against we need to see ourselves as god sees us but it sounds you probably heard me last week listen to the sermon again from last week you probably it probably sounds so new agey it sounds a little bit off the kilter it probably resonates a little bit with those of you who have had any experience with some of the online teachers or the tv preachers with large mass of uh congregants about how awesome you are and how good you are and how pleasant you are and but beloved it We need to see ourselves in that light. Knowing the reality of what we truly are in our flesh, we need to know the better reality of what we are called and how we are seen. Because if you're just a worm that God hasn't smashed yet, that's all you'll ever be. And Jesus didn't die and give his life and come out of glory to suffer for something that he considered to be a worm that he should smash. Remember the love of God we talked about from verse 2 a couple of weeks ago? The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He has made. In Lamentations chapter 3, we hear these words The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I had wrote that on a little tablet that hangs over my coffee maker. And it's been there for so long, I don't even see it. You know what I mean? We don't even see that stuff. We need changing signs. His mercies are new every day the context there if you know much about lamentations is uh, not a pleasant thing it's a very hard time much like the people here much like many of us this very moment there are hard things even though our life may be good as we look at the overview there are small little things that are boldly screaming like billboards when they should be sticky notes John says we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So we can praise God for his abiding love. And the fact that we are in a real judicial sense loveless, we are not loveless because God has loved us everlasting forever. Before, you've heard me say this a hundred times that before you were, God loved you. prophet Micah has he told you O oh man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God Zephaniah the Lord your God is in your midst the mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love he will exalt you over with loud singing even in the context of justice God's love prevails So it's never remiss for us to say that God is love in all that He does and all that He desires. In every aspect of every manifestation of God's sovereignty, in everything, God's love is the point. And there are times in our lives where we don't want to hear that. There are times in our lives where we don't want to even think about it. There are times in our lives where we scoff at the very nature of even any spiritual or biblical thing. Why? Because we live in a world that has taken all that is good about God and created something else from it. And we have all been a victim of that at some time or another. But God hasn't changed. because God loved the world in this way that He gave the only Son, the only one that He had, that those believing in Him will not perish, but they do have eternal life. So we can hear the teachings to the church of Philippi where Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can praise God for the peace that surpasses all understanding. And beloved, this isn't a permanent fixture amongst our minds. I want you to hear this. This peace, this rejoicing, this stuff that we're going through now, we're just talking about praising God for who He is today. That's all we're doing. Nothing else. That peace ebbs and flows, arrives and vanishes because we are a fickle bunch. We're a fickle bunch. We are the leaf tossed to and fro by the waves, we are the dust that is blowing in the wind. And the way we feel more structured in our spiritual lives is we try to be more controlling in our physical lives. And we try to engage in such a way that we think this is what righteousness requires of me. I'm going to put my hands on these areas and I'm going to put down a track. Not a highway, not a field, not even a fenced-in ranch, a track, a one-way track. It's the second railroad metaphor this morning. To be a trolley track. But this is the only way we can go. This is the only way we can speak. This is the only way we can think. This is the only way we can look. And if we veer off of this, we fail. failed. And if we fail, failed, then the love that God has for me is less. And the reason that I'm suffering is because of that, because I can't get back on track. And that's a state of misery. And it's not just misery for us. It's misery for everyone around us. And then when we come out of that state, those little tiny places, they go, "Oh, just praise God. It's almost joke. It's almost a joke." It's almost a joke. <clears throat> Paul writes of it. It <clears throat> just my the Lord told Paul. He says, "My grace is sufficient for you, second Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 9. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I'm weak, he is strong. So we take every mathematical and scientific equation on that. The reciprocity is this. When I'm strong, he is weak. It doesn't mean that he's weak. Like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The weakness of God is greater than the strength of men. It's a play on words. God is never weak. But when we are strong, we are not relying upon the strength of God. And in that, God's power isn't resting. How do we know? Because we're not resting. How do you know you're not spiritual? Because you're not at rest. How do you know you're not mature? Because you're not at rest. You're laboring. Mary chose the better way. Why? Because the rest is the promise of God and His power. So you heard all these things, you see it, that we, we praise God. We have reason to praise God. We have reason to say that blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But almost every one of these opportunities comes from a place of hurt or suffering or pain. Now, I don't want to get too tongue-in-cheek and play on words and things, but I saw something a couple of weeks ago that, that was a little, it, it, it made me pause and I'm still paused. It is a play on words, but it says, you know, pain is inevitable, Suffering's a choice. But I see those words as equivocal. We are going to suffer. But the question is, are we suffering for suffering's sake? Are we suffering for Christ's sake? How do we know the difference? The Spirit of God brings out, even when we're running, even when we're trying to dismantle and disentangle everything, God's peace surpasses all understanding. God's peace surpasses every journal entry. God's peace surpasses every experience. God's peace surpasses every hurt, every ill word, every horrible terror. And when we settle in that place, and sometimes it's, you know, a season. Sometimes it's just a couple of times a week. Sometimes it's... Never, it feels like. But when we apply all this to our lives, there is something that, that this is our, my own words, this is, this, is an in, this is a look inside of where I am. So the application may be the same, different, more, less. But when I find these moments, and sometimes... I always wanted them to last, you know? When you have something good going on, you want it to last. You want to stay. You want to settle. You want to rest in those areas that sort of take you away from the reality of life. But, beloved, in the spiritual sense, we can find that rest in the midst of the most hard labor. And so when I find these small things, there's something that I've learned, that I'm learning to do. And I'm sharing with you The practical application, no, the practical systemization of what I should be doing, not a confession of what I am doing. Let me say that in a better way. I'm telling you what I hope to accomplish, not showing you that I'm doing it. Okay? (laughs) You got me? The first thing is thankfulness. I can worship God with my thankfulness. Colossians 3, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word, whatever you say, whatever you do indeed, whatever you're doing in your life, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God as you do it, the Father through him. And I know that the hardest thing to do is be thankful. So I put that first for a reason. Because I think that is, we see the command to rejoice, we see the reality of rejoicing, we see the joy is often inexpressible because we just don't know how to handle it, but we settle in it. So how do we express an inexpressible joy in the midst of some stuff that we just wish the whole world would catch on fire with? Some of you have come to me at certain opportunities in my life and said, Hey, let's, let's burn this thing down. I got the matches. And they're all weather matches they'll strike on your forehead in a rainstorm. It won't feel good but they'll strike. Burn it down. What's the what's what's the anecdote of that? Thank you God. Well, I don't have anything to thank God for. Yes we do. Thank you God that you've not abandoned me. Thank you God that you've loved me. Thank you God that I have <laughs> I have not I have learned to to see you and to see your love in its pure light. So the second part of that application, I could just preach a whole sermon on thankfulness, is to have a focus, an opportunity for focus. Now that I'm being grateful, I'm worshiping God and don't even know it. I'm just trying to find the positive and reframe everything in the context of God's sovereignty so that the Spirit of God has done a work in me and continues to do a work in me that my mind is focused. Looking to Jesus. What is focus? Looking to Jesus. Not looking to the chore, not looking to the relationship, not looking to the bank account, not looking to the physical health, not looking to the context of our success or failures, not looking of how a good parent or we were or not. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, the wrath of God, the death of his body, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what does that do? The same thing it does in our relationships with our spouse. We become thankful for who they are, no matter what it is. And we begin to look at what they do right. It doesn't negate what they've done wrong. You've got to be accountable for what you've done wrong. But oftentimes, we don't want to do that. Fear, persistence, doesn't matter. But when we become focused on those things, then what happens? Our love rekindles. The same thing for the Lord. And I would say this way, that if we do this spiritually, all the other things will take care of themselves. Why would you say such a silly thing? Because Jesus said it. To seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. We labor for the wrong thing. Forgetting who our father is. Who holds all things in his hands. We're mining for something that's too deep in the core of the earth for us to even obtain. I had that conversation yesterday. I and mean, I had this idea that I would do X. And, and uh, I would do X in this amount of time and it's actually physically impossible so i got to just put that to the side and don't do it anymore I don't want to run a fool's errand in my spiritual life but there's nothing that is impossible with God but I have this against you Jesus says to the church of Ephesus actually You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, change the way you're thinking, the word repent, and do the love that you did at first. If you don't do this, I'm going to come and take away your light. I'm going to take away your effectiveness. I'm going to take away your joy. And it's not like he comes and takes it away. It's just a natural consequence of this. So when I able to be thankful my focus is on Christ and when my focus is on Christ my love for him is rekindled and then the love that I have for others is on fire (laughs) to the point that sometimes I have these epiphanies oh my goodness I love this person more than I've ever loved them before in my life in a real tangible way not in an emotional way and then the emotions come right It reminds us of our love. We love God and it reminds us of worshiping, thankfulness. All this stuff reminds us of God's love for us. How can I love Him? Because He first loved me. Christ died for me. And what does that do? What I just read out of Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything it's a full circle right so this type of discipline settles my anxiety it'll settle yours it's a promise of the Lord if you'd asked me three years ago do you suffer from anxiety I'd be like are you kidding me cool as a cucumber I wasn't and I'm, some of you even tried to tell me that through the years I'm like I'm not anxious about, I'm not worried about nothing because I had a bag over my head. And what does it do then? What does it do with the world around me? Okay, so we've got my spiritual life in tune or attuned. What is it going to do about my issues? Well, it enriches all of our relationships with the world, with ourselves, with our spouse, or our significant other, or our partner, with our children, with our job. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And what's the end of that? You know what I'm going to say. We rest. Nap time with God. That'd be a good children's book, wouldn't it? Nap time with God, because you hate nap time as a kid. I remember in... You know, early grade school and all, time for a nap, you hate it. Oh my gosh, if we rolled out a cot right now and said, nap time, shut the lights out. I'd do it. We need to rest. Come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. This is Jesus, the God of the universe. I'm lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your soul. See my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not asking anything of you. Because Jesus is bound to the yoke of righteousness. Jesus is bound to the yoke of justice. Jesus was bound to all of that on the cross and he's free from it. And his blood testifies greater and louder than the blood of Abel. We're free, beloved. We're free. And oh, how I want it now. I want to undo a lifetime of bondage right this minute. But it's not going to happen. But through the subtle disciplines, through the prayers of each other, through small little intimate moments, through the touch of God's Word and His kindness through each other, we will become more and more free. And the freer we are, the more restful we will become. It's like a new fish we have in our tank. We can't see him. He's been hiding in a rock for three days. But the safer he is, the more we'll see him. Beloved, you are safe in Christ. You do not have to hide from God. You do not have to hide from yourself. And you do not have to hide from each other. But until you're comfortable, you stay right where you are. Because in God's timing, he will bring you out. Let's remember all this when we take the table in a moment. Let's pray. Father, there are so many burdens in my heart right now. (laughs) But I thank you that those burdens have not tethered me to a hopelessness. That through suffering, through pain, through growth, that there is hope. it's so weird that I can say so many things that I cannot apply to my life it's so weird that you can teach us stuff that we know is true that we struggle with and that some of these things that we will never perfect but you have promised us this one thing that will and is perfected is that the love that you have for us is perfected in us when we thank you when we rest and when we do the disciplines that you've called us to and father the beauty in that is even when we can't you will how through the hearing of your word through the power of your spirit you are working in us this very moment and it's not for us to get up off of this time of worship and decide to be better you are going to grow us some quickly some not so quick some of us are like peter and we think we're there and we just pop off at the mouth and we jump up in praise but only to find ourselves back into the hole but it's okay because even in the darkest depths of every place you are there And so father as I think of the vastness of the cosmos and how it stands to show us just how insignificant we are in our being through such infinite comparison Lord when I see your love for me when I see your love for us I'm challenged to call the cosmos finite in comparison to us, your people. So we thank you for this beauty. We thank you for your love. In Christ's name, amen.